if you want to build a business for the future, what you need is you need like a 16-year-old that understands TikTok next to a 45-year-old that's been working in client services for 20 years. You have to communicate with each other, especially when things are hard, because what you don't say will end up controlling you. Hi everyone and welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. First of all, I'd like to thank Motivate Media for making this happen, but also our fantastic sponsors, Najahi and Smartcast. More about them later. Today's guest. I've been wanting to get this man for some time and so I'm so grateful to be able to have been interviewing him, not only here in Dubai, but live on stage at Dubai Opera in front of around about a thousand people. Something that was super, super exciting. This guy started a business in his bedroom while he was at university. That business failed, he started a new business. It's valued at nearly $700 million now. He's the latest dragon on Dragon's Den. My gosh, he's done so much in such a short period of time. I could literally rule this off, but you already know who he is. Let's get straight into the interview with the awesome Stephen Bartlett. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Really good. Really good. What do you think of this? It, do you know what? It's so, so beautiful. It's such a beautiful theatre and I, um, I really want to come back here and do more stuff. I, I was taking loads of photos when I was, before I came on of the theatre because it's so beautiful, yeah. You've seen your fair share of theatres recently as well, haven't you? I've finished my... You've seen your th fair share yeah, of theatres. Yeah, I'm actually in the middle of a tour at the moment. So we have a 100-person cast. We have a 40... I won't give it all away because we're going to bring it to Dubai in September. A 40-person gospel choir, a big production with a big band, and we're touring up and down the UK at the moment. We did three nights at the London Palladium, and it's this fusion of... Ex ex expression and mediums that you've probably never encountered in your life. A house gospel choir, video, spoken word, a band, all to try and deliver home a message about life and truth and business and, and everything to you. So it catches people off guard when they see it because when you think of a live podcast, you expect someone flicking through a presentation, um, but it's very, very different. And the reason why I did it that way is probably going to come out tonight in our conversation, which is um, my sort of deep belief that we should all try our best to resist our labels. And I kind of, I see labels as, um, as you could call it convention, but really, whenever we, you know, do anything in our lives, when I, when I left my company, Social Chain, when it was worth 500 million or whatever it was at the time, the tempting thing to do was to spend my life as a social media CEO. Yeah. And having studied what happens when people get too caught up in identifying with their last accomplishment, I made the decision that I was going to try and pursue every facet of Stephen Bartlett. So I became a DJ. I love musicals and theatre. So the show is basically somewhere between a musical and, um, and theatre. Um, I became the creative director of the biggest psychedelics company in the world, worth three billion. And I'm pursuing all of my interests without labels. So, and it's really, really sort of worked out for me. Yeah. The creativity behind the Diary of CEO live, though. I mean, yeah. that, that, to me, I, well, I've asked you this already, haven't mm. I? But we should share it with the audience. I'm like, where do you come up with an idea like that from, you know? Was there a team of people mm. that were in there giving you, you know, inspiration and ideas? Or did you just think it through and say, I want to do something different? Well, this is like a principle of my life. So whenever you're faced with solving a problem, and Elon Musk talks about this a lot, what people tend to do is they, they reason from convention. So they look at the way that it's been done before, and then they sometimes just put a spin on that. 
So a live podcast, I wanted to do a live podcast, so the obvious thing to do, and the easiest thing to do in terms of thinking energy, was to sit on a stage like this and interview someone. That's the safest thing to do, but then the returns of doing the conventional safe thing are incredibly low. No one's going to leave this and go, that was you know, unbe unbelievable if that's the format that I chose. Or you can reason from first principles. And reasoning from first principles, which is what Elon Musk says is, is the, the root cause of all of his innovation, says, okay, let's start from the things we know to be true. And that's how I start when I'm thinking about building companies or putting on a show. I, I look at the things that I know to be true. And one of the things I know to be true, which I think is true for pretty much everyone here, is that music is an unbelievable medium to deliver an emotional message. We all, we all say, yes, that's true. Okay. Spoken word, as well as an unbelievable medium to deliver a message. So does it make sense to combine the two? When, I t when, I, when you listen to Adele sing, there's, there's a voice in your head that's adding meaning to it. You, you, you're, you're saying, oh, well, my heartbreak, the person I, I love. And so you, you're basically doing the spoken word piece in your head to make the music mean something to you that makes you cry. And so what, what my show does is I use my words to tee up the meaning of the music, then the music comes in, and it hits you, and we, we had people sobbing, like not just one or two. When I look at the front row of the show, most, a, a lot of people on the front row are crying. I'm crying on stage. The first show we did at London Palladium, I'm sobbing from both eyes. Um, and then you have this additional medium, which is visual, uh -huh. um, which, which adds another layer to it. Um, and we, that's, my, that's what created the Diary of a CEO Live show, was me reasoning up from those principles. And then you have this new thing, and you can do that in your life, you can do that in your companies. As Elon says, it requires so much more mental energy to innovate. To go through that, it's also kind of risky because there's no blueprint. So people don't do it. When they start a company, they look at it and go, how do you start a company? Well, people arrive at 9 a.m. and they leave at 5. So that's what I'll do. It's safer, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a better solution. It's definitely not a solution designed for 2022. And this is why going to that extra effort to, to understand what your first principles are, the base truths you know. One that really helped my company when I started Social Chain in 2014 was I didn't study business. So I wasn't polluted by convention. So when it came to trying to figure out how to get predominantly young people, because I was in the social media industry, to come and work at my business and to stay and not quit, my, I reasoned from first principles. Well, young people live in the Instagram generation now, and they're, gonna, they're basically going to be looking um, at this glass screen and comparing their experience of work mm -hmm. to all of their friends, something you couldn't do 30 years ago. So we've now got to compete in order to retain young talent with the entire world in terms of company culture. So if you came to my office in Manchester, which was our, our big headquarters where we had about 300 people, it was designed by the employees. There's a hundred, like, hundred meter jungle where you can go and relax and meditate. The working hours were up to you. You decide. We had a policy where you could leave work and go and travel the world and come back to your job. Completely redesigned from the ground up to attract a completely different generation. That was, and you can tell by the kind of creation of that, that someone did first principle reasoning in 2020, 15, uh, 14 when we started, because they created a solution that was designed for now. Had I not done that, I would have said, if you're 10 minutes late, you've got a disciplinary. I'm going to give you no freedom. This is kind of how work used to be and offices used to be. You're going to have to wear a uniform. At Social Chain, you wear whatever the fuck you want. Sorry, I shouldn't swear. You wear whatever you want, right? At Social Chain, there's also no hierarchy. So if you didn't know me, you would have no idea that I was the CEO. 
I wore a cap, I sat next to an intern and someone that had been there one year. I didn't have a big glass box office. Mm -hmm. The holiday rules that I had were the same for an intern on their first day. And we, 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 we'd kind of flattened the hierarchy because, again, reasoning from first principles, that's clearly what that generation wanted in order to achieve my objective, which was to hire the best people and retain the best talent. You can do this in every area of your life. You can do it in your relationships. I'm going to give you one example from my romantic relationships. Um, convention and society says that you have to have, for example, you have to live together, you have to sleep in the same bed at night, and it has a bunch of other things, like Valentine's Day has to look like this. With me and my partner, what we did was, we actually like having our own space. Uh -huh. So when we go on holiday, this sounds crazy, I have my own room, my own bedroom, she has her own bedroom, we share bed the bed when we go to sleep and stuff, uh -huh. but I want to I have my own space and she wants to have hers. Convention will come into your mind and say, that means he doesn't love me. Yeah. Or that means she doesn't love me. And convention will plague you and say, well, if it's not like it's supposed to look like on Instagram, then it's wrong. It's the brave amongst us, it's the, it's the, the winners amongst us, they, they put convention to one side, they reason up from what they actually want and what's actually true, and they create a brand new solution designed for now and the problem you're trying to solve and your life. Because the truth is, no one has ever lived your life, no one has ever solved the problem, that any, it could be any problem in your life right now, relationships, business, whatever. No one has ever had the task of solving it today for you, ever. So, and, and the payoff, when you zoom out, of going to that extra effort to reason from first principles is unbelievable. It's the difference between success and failure. No, it's the difference between success and ch like changing the world or changing the industry. Elon is the best example of it. He said when he started building electric cars, everybody um, said, well, batteries are too expensive. You can never make a fast, cheap car. And when he reasoned up from first principles, he goes, well, if I buy the raw materials on the metal exchange, I can actually create a battery for really, really cheap. No one else was doing that. No one else was trying to really start from the infrastructure upwards and build from scratch. It, it was much more difficult. It would have been much easier for him to buy the batteries on the market and then just try and make a fancy looking shiny car with a nice design. He went to all of that extra effort and, and you know, and now it's the, the number one selling car in, in um, the United States, beating all of the car manufacturers. So I, I, I in, like, saying this to people is one thing, because most people will walk out of here and still not do it. Mm. But if you can try and make that a principle of your life, whenever you encounter a situation which is ignoring, ignoring convention, not for the sake of being a rebel, because sometimes it turns out convention's right. Sometimes it does. But, but making a commitment to yourself to try and ask yourself what you know to be true now and reasoning up a brand new solution to solve that problem, um, your life will change. And sometimes, as I said, I would reason up from the true thing, the things that I knew to be true and it turns out convention was right. There's some things like HR and finance which actually don't need much disruption and the laws are pretty rigid there in mm -hmm. terms of legalities, staff contracts and stuff like that you do need to play within the laws there. So, mm -hmm. and that is definitely one of the defining principles of my life is going, and I say it to my team all the time, whether it's the podcast or anything we do, we are a team that goes to the extra effort of, of reasoning up from what we know to be true now to see if there is a better way to do things. We don't just accept convention because it's safe, lower risk, and easier to do. 
Um, and it, you know, over the long run, it's changed my life. So isn't that fantastic? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Give him a round of applause. Um, I think that's so important for us to understand. Let, 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 let's go back because you, you literally have become an overnight success, but obviously not because there's a whole backstory that goes with how you got to where you got. Mm. Now, I, I grew up in Nigeria. Ah. So I probably spent more years there than, there than you have. My dad yeah. was born there. My grandparents are missionaries there. And so I learned, I learned about you know, what it was like to, to grow up as a kid in West Africa. Your mum's Nigerian. You were born in Botswana. Mm. Take me back to... Plymouth. And the reason I say Plymouth is because a lot of people here might not know where Plymouth is. <laughs> okay, yes, so my channels are in the building. <laughs> Plymouth really is at the far end mm. of the country, isn't it? Yeah, it's the middle of nowhere. So I was born in Botswana in Africa and moved to the, to the UK when I was maybe three years old or something. And I think the most significant thing to understand about that move was I was pretty much the only black kid, other than my brothers and sisters, pretty much the only black kid in like, my school in Devon. If you know Devon and Cornwall, it's like farm country. I can hear people laughing, like farm countryside, <laughs> right? There's not a whiter place on earth. And this is important <laughs> context because we, we attribute, you know, when we're, especially when we're young, but pretty much for our entire lives, we try and understand the value of something by looking at it in which the context it exists in. One way I'll explain this is, when you go to a restaurant, if they put three steaks on the menu, people will assume, and they've done multiple studies on this, the expensive steak is really expensive and a bit too fancy. The, the least expensive steak is like cheap and probably a bad steak, and mm. most people will just go for the middle one. Same with TVs in a TV shop. If you remove the, 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 the top, they use the, the cheap and the expensive to, to determine the, the cost of all three. So it's the context in which you see it. The same applies for like your mobile phones. I used to love my Nokia. I thought my Nokia phone was the best phone on earth, my Nokia 3310. In a world of iPhones, that is, you'll have shame if you still have that phone. <laughs> the exact same phone, but the context it exists in has changed. So the perceived value of it is really bad, and that was the same for me. Didn't understand why I was the only black one, why my hair was curly, why my family were by far the poorest, why my, the front of my house had the window smashed on it for about 15 years, the back of our house was knocked down, completely knocked down, um, for, for about, probably about a decade, why our car that I got dropped to school in was this smashed to pieces van that like didn't work, and all of that creates, like being a Nokia in a world of iPhones, this deep feeling of shame and insecurity, and why me, and, and how do I fit in? Especially when you're younger, right? We all just want to fit in. So this is like, this is foundational to the reason that I'm sat here today. I, I, I think if I, if I didn't feel that shame and that deep sense of insecurity, I wouldn't be sat here today. Because what happened next? I, what, the, you know, the things that invalidate you when you're younger be, become the things as an adult you seek validation from. So at 18 years old, but even way before then, I write in my diary, which I've posted on my Facebook, etc., so everyone can see it, I write in my diary that my goals in life before I'm 25 are to have a Range Rover Sport, a million pounds, a six-pack and a girlfriend. <laughs> that was my goal in life. Those were all pretty much all the things that had made me feel invalid. So I presumed they would make me, they would validate me as an adult. So off I went, 18 years old, after kick, getting kicked out of school and dropping out of university to try and get the things I didn't have. You know, I used to lie about the house I lived in. So pretty much for, for my entire between three and 18, none of my friends knew where I lived. 
when they dropped me home, home, like after football or whatever, I would lie about the house that I lived in because I didn't want them to see it. And get dropped off down the I'd street. I'd get dropped off down the street. Even when we, we got dropped off to, to school, because our car was this smashed to pieces van, I would pray that the traffic lights would turn red as far as possible from the school so that I didn't, because the closer you got to the school, the more students would see me getting yeah, out. Yeah. I was praying that, it, and then it always, oh, it's always green and it drops me right by the front door. And I get out, and oh, look, the girl I fancy's there. Fuck. You know what I mean? That, so that was my childhood. It was this constant attempt of trying to fit in. And, um, and my podcast has taught me what happens next when people have that kind of upbringing, when they have those traumas. When they have an anomalous childhood, they often become anomalies when they grow up. So my podcast guests, the reason why they are obsessed is because they went through pain. The reason why they are successful is because of trauma, typically. It's typically the thing. It's why I always start by talking about childhood, because having studied childhood psychology a little bit since school, um, it's, it's the most foundational, that first 10 years of your life, we basically end up living the stories we told ourselves about ourselves from that period as adults. And we are like, we are grown up children living out those stories, so. You did, you did a, a documentary um, where you worked in a school yeah. for a period of time. Did that teach you much? Yeah, it, it taught me a, a bunch about the school system and why it's broken. Um, when I, when I, so I got expelled from school twice. The first time they expelled me, because I was making the school a lot of money, I'd done a lot of deals, I'd done the vending machine deals, so the school actually made revenue from, from the vending machines for the first time ever, because they were going to buy them, and I thought we could get them for free and make revenue from them. So I did that deal. Then I started running pretty much all the school trips when I was 16 and went to sixth form for the same school. Then I started doing all of the parties. So if there was, I would think of reasons to throw parties. So I'd, oh, it's Halloween, I'd throw a Halloween party. Start of summer, I'd throw the start of summer party. And when I say, like, for my, I threw the end of summer party, which happened to be on the 26th of August, my birthday, really like a birthday party that people <laughs> paid to come to. 2,000 people came in nine days, so much so that the council had parents ringing trying to check if it was, you know. I, so I was making so much money, and I'd give the school some of the money. So when Mr. Thomas, head of Key Stage 5, realized that my attendance was 30% in school, he gave me the expulsion letter in the library, came over my shoulder, he's like, ha, you're expelled. I took the letter to the guy, Mr. Sprenkel, who I'd been given the money to, and I gave him the letter, I said, I'm expelled, and he goes, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never forget what he said to me, because I go back to the, I've been back to the school twice to speak, and I tell the story in a roundabout way to kind of protect him. He says, you're my Harry Potter. I'm going to keep you under the stairs because you make the school a lot of money. And I was unexpelled. I carried on with my poor attendance. I'm a very nice guy. Like, I was never like the kid swearing or throwing chairs. Very, very nice, respectful. My, my parents raised me to be very respectful to adults, but I just have never been good at doing things I don't want to do. And this, this is a trend throughout my life. I, if I try something and I don't want to do it, regardless of the fact that I might not have a plan B, I will quit. And I talk about this a lot, right, being yeah. a, a good quitter. But anyway, so, so in the last month of school, I guess they'd kick me off the, the prom, they'd kick me out of the, the football team, then they expelled me. So I had to, I, they said, go home, don't come back, and I had to do my exams from home. But at that point, obviously, I had no more revenue. I was probably going to make the school. So it was more what did your mum say to you when you were expelled? She, was, she, she didn't know. My parents didn't know. I had the conversation with my dad last week. I said, Dad, by the way, the GCSE results that I gave you weren't the actual results. <laughs> I scanned it and redid them because I was... I said to him last week, he came to my show at the London Palladium. I'm like 29 now. I said, Dad, by the way, that... that I literally said to him in the car after the show, I was like, that slip you have of my GCSE results, I was like... <laughs> but, 
so by the time I was about 10 years old, both my mum and my dad, because I was the youngest of four kids, had done the thing which I think a lot of parents do, was it, the rules for my oldest sister were tough. Like, she, if she was home 10 minutes late, big deal. I, by the time I was 10, I could leave the house for days. <laughs> I swear, my mum my and dad's business, my mum's business got really busy. She was running a corner shop, basically, and she ended up sleeping in the corner shop because she was, like, racially abused and people would burn her car and stuff. So she, like, basically decided to sleep in the shop. My dad would finish his job and go there. So, like, I, I, this is also why I think I became an entrepreneur. I just had this huge amount of independence. So you look at it and go, a really insecure kid that wants the nice things. And then his parents are never around, so he has to learn this lesson that everything he's going to get in his life doesn't appear under a tree at Christmas, doesn't appear on the kitchen table when I wake up. It's a direct result of what I do. Independence and insecurity, I think you'll create an entrepreneur. And I learned that at a very young age. I would start selling stuff. I sold cigarettes by the crate load from Nigeria. Like, I, like <laughs> by the crate load. I would sell them in bin bags. Like, I'd sell you a bag, a bin. I was selling anything. I was doing whatever I could to make money. This is why I started the parties, the vending machine stuff. I was trying to find ways to make money, and um, good thing I didn't end up in prison, I guess, because you know, because you could have gone down that path, couldn't you? My best friend said to me when I was 18, he said, and I remember where I was stood when he said it to me. It was that true. He said, "You're either going to be a millionaire in prison," and I, and the reason for that is not because I'm like a criminal. It's because I was so hungry to 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 make it. Yeah. And when you're hungry and you're crafty. You can kind of go, you can, it's kind of, you can use that for good or bad. I'm too much of a coward to use it for bad. So I, like I, I'm, I have nightmares about being locked in prison. I still do today. Like I'm, I'm too much of a coward on, in that regard to use it for bad. So I chose business. So let's talk, let's talk about business and let's talk about the early part of your, I mean, you're entrepreneurial because you're selling bag loads of cigarettes yeah. to your mates and stuff and running parties. But let's, let's talk about the, the first you know, kind of step into social media and setting up a business there. Well, obviously, everybody knows about social shame, but there was mm. Woolpark before. Yeah, so my first kind of business idea, when I called my mum and said, Mum, I'm dropping out of university, as a lot of you will know, my mum responds, she says, if you drop out of university, I will never speak to you again, and I'll ask the rest of the family not to speak to you again. And then, it's funny, because about four months later, I went home, so I, I dropped out, and I went home on the Megabus back to Plymouth, to like surprise my mum and dad. And when I came through the door, my mum was really, really happy. I thought, oh, she's like, she's come to terms with it, she's gotten over it, all good. It transpires, as I found out later that night, that my dad, for an easy life, had told her I'd gone back to university. Because <laughs> I just think he didn't want the headache, and like, I don't really blame him. But when my mum found out later that night that I hadn't gone back to university, she runs up to my door, she kicks my door, I wish I had an abortion. And I went back to, to really? Manchester. Yeah, she said, she, yeah, she, she took, didn't take it well. And I went, went back to Manchester on the Megabus that day, and I made the decision that I was going to do it anyway, and I carried on. And uh, worked out in the end. It's important to give context here, right? Because that, that kind of villainizes my mother. But when you understand my... And this is, what, this is why, like, empathy and communication are just so foundational to business and relationships and family... You, you tend to find out that everybody fundamentally wants the same thing. And their own biases and experiences in, influence what they think the path to that same thing is. So my mother, you've got to look at her, her upbringing. She left school when she was seven. She can't read and she can't write still today. 
if I put, my mum can't read a book. She can't write. She can't turn on a computer. So when her son says he's going to leave his education, for her that means he's in danger and he's going to miss out on the thing that I was never able to get. So because she loved me, she stood in my way, in her own way, but um, that's why she did it. And I always knew that, so I didn't take it personally. And then obviously as things got better and things worked out for me, you know, she, she, was, she was very sorry, but she didn't need to be sorry because at the end of the day, she did it because she loved me and, you, you know, I understood that. So. It's, very, it's built into the Nigerian culture that education is absolutely critical, isn't it? You know, that's, that's your way out of dodge almost, isn't it? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And we don't really understand that in the Western world as much, but I mean, if you've got parents from that kind of background, whether it's under India or whatever, um, yeah, they're, 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 they know that the different, the way out of hardship um, of a lifestyle of just survival is education. That's liberation from that life. So my mum wanted that for all of, my, uh, all, of her, all of her children, and the first three children, my older brothers and sisters, they all took that path, and I, I didn't. Mm. So, and they were very good at it. That's the other thing. My brothers were geniuses at school. Oh, man, so yeah. they made you look even worse. That's why I forged the GCSE certificate, because <laughs> I, couldn't, like, I couldn't come home having my older brothers had got an A-star, A-star, A-star. They were on the newspapers. They'd rewritten some of the textbooks to make them harder, because like maths and then further maths weren't difficult enough for them. And then you look at my grades and you go, oh, what a waste. What a, you know what I mean? So I, I just couldn't bear to... My parents weren't really paying attention, as I said, so... It was just kind of like handing it to my dad, and then that was the end of it. And he kind of looks at it and goes, yeah, you know. Okay, so let's talk about Wallpark. What was Wallpark all about? How did it start? Why did it start? And, and, what, and what happened for it then to become something else? So I'm in my university dorm room in Manchester, and I just dropped out, but I stayed there for a year, right? Because I, I had nowhere else to live. So, um, and I, I realized that there's 100,000 students around me in, in Manchester, basically on this one long road. So Oxford Road, you have two universities on it with, with 70,000 students. And then at the end of the road, if you go far enough down, you have Salford University with another 30,000. And I, I, I thought it was really bizarre that we, A, didn't have any way to communicate as 100,000 students, and B, we still used physical notice boards in the universities. Still today, physical notice boards. So you walk into the student union or the university, there is a physical notice board with loads of pieces of paper on it. Very simple, I thought, I will bring that online. I'll create a notice board for each like, city for the students called Wall Park. A wall you park things on, maybe? You can come up, think of different reasons for the name. Um, and that was my idea. So if you're at the University of Manchester, you can go on and say, um, I'm looking for someone to play in the football team tonight in goal. We need a goalkeeper. At all, which means all of the students in Manchester, not just one university. Yep and then put it into a category sports and press post. Or if it's something more specific and it just applies for students at your university, we have a job at Manchester Metropolitan U uh, Student Union at students at MMU and then put it into a category jobs and post. That was the idea. And what happened? Failed. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. No, good night. And that was <laughs> the end of my story. How badly did it fail? I don't, I don't mean financially, but how, how was it emotionally for you? Well, so. It's interesting, because I say it failed, but it actually is what made Social Chain. Because I was trying to figure out, as everyone in this room will, if you start a business, how to market the, the website. Mm -hmm. And so I tried flyers. That didn't work. I, I would wake up at 6 a.m. and go and hand out flyers. Literally on the flyers, it would say, you can win £100 if you sign up to my website. No one signed up. 
<laughs> posters. Went around Manchester at 6 a.m. in the morning, put the posters up. What I didn't realize is the council come at 7. <laughs> they take them all down. That didn't work. And then, like, the, the, the in, really interesting thing, and this goes back to what I said about innovation and marketing and first principles, is when you run out of money, marketing teams start to innovate because they have no choice. It's when marketing teams have loads of money that they just do the conventional thing. Uh, radio ads, TV ads, there. Ask your marketing team, say, what would we do if we had no money? And that's what happened to me. I, I had, I'd raised 5,000 pounds investment for Woolpark. Well, I raised more, but I had a 5,000 pound uh, marketing budget. And we basically ran out of money. So we had to start thinking for ourselves. We had to start thinking of new things. And at the time, I remember seeing a, a satirical, sarcastic Facebook group that said, things Manchester students don't say. And it's very simple. It just posted things that Manchester students would never say. So for example, there was this like, big piano in the student union. So it posts something like, I absolutely love, um, uh, I'm so glad the university spent money on that piano instead of uh, improving the quality of the courses. It'd be like, you know, Sarcastic. This, this page got 8,000 followers. And I thought to myself, I wonder what would happen if I posted Wallpark on that page. So I, I, I messaged the guy that ran it, and I told him to meet me in the middle of Manchester. I gave him 50 pounds, and he gave me the page. I posted Wallpark on it, and people came to the website. So in my very, like, and this sounds so obvious now because the world changed, but think about the fact that I then managed to get an additional 50 million followers for about 10 grand. I would go to, because no one valued social media back then, I would go to a kid that had uh, a Twitter page with 1.5 million fitness fans on it. He also had a uh, Instagram, a food page with 7 million Instagram followers. And I basically got the page for free by giving him a job. Because back then, and, and people hear me say this in 2022, they think I'm some like, like the Tinder swindler or something. Like I was like, <laughs> like I was like ripping people off. No, a thousand pounds for a social media page with 3 million followers was unbelievable back then. I was, I was paying people, fit, but, they, but the opportunity wasn't obvious. So I went around the world at 21 years old, 20 years old, at the time, trying to build as many student social media pages as I could to advertise Woolpark. I eventually realized that my hypothesis about Woolpark was wrong, and I decided just to focus on the social media, media thing. And then at 21, 20, 20 years old, I literally tried to round up every young person that had built a big social media page. And that's what I did. And I basically took ownership of their social media pages just by giving them a job, because they were, a lot of the time, running these social media pages for free whilst looking for a, what their parents considered real job. So Steve comes along and goes, in the case of a, 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 you know, a young lady called Hannah Anderson, I'm going to pay you what a doctor gets paid, and, you, and you're gonna, I'm going to own the Harry Potter page that you've started, and you're going to be able to carry on doing that full time in our company. Unbelievable deal. Yeah, yeah. And that's, what, that's basically how Social Chain started, a chain of social media pages. So this is a quick message from the sponsors of the podcast. First of all, Smartcast. Now, Smartcast are dealing with food security in a way that nobody else has thought about it. There is a problem right now that's exacerbated by Russia invading Ukraine because Russia produces 40% of the world's fertilizer. If there's no fertilizer, then the farmers can't grow crops. So smart farming really is the future of food. And Smartcast are the company at the forefront 
forefront of that. So I'm over the moon that they decided to come in and sponsor this podcast, not only so we can share the message with you, but the world could learn more about the right things to do, how food is gonna be used in the future, and how we can keep away from GMO and fertilizers and grow natural product the right way so our kids and us can consume it the right way for the future. Talk to me about a few issues that, that I see with social change. You, you were a boss, very young, mm. you know, in charge of a company that was growing. And so you didn't have years of experience in life to understand what necessarily you needed to do. Were you winging it? Did you take courses in leadership? What was going on there? Like definitely winging it. Like, and not always well, in hindsight. In the moment you don't realize, but in hindsight you go, ah, oh, mm, that was a critical mistake I made. Um, yeah, I was winging it, and th that's for, the, for good and for bad. As I said earlier, when you wing something, you, you naturally avoid conventional thinking, yeah. which means you tend to create innovative solutions to solving problems. But at the same time, as I said earlier, there are some things where convention's right, and you miss those things. So you end up paying the price for those things. So really, the balance is naivety and experience. The balance of having those two together in your business for me, it's the winning formula. And I say this now, I say, if you want to own the future, if you want to build a business for the future, what you need is you need like a 16-year-old that understands TikTok next to a 45-year-old that's been working in client services for 20 years. Then you can create an unbelievable social media business mm -hmm. because you're going to have the insight of the 16-year-old who understands the present, but you're also going to have the experience of you know, the 45-year-old who understands the past and convention, and together, if you understand today and yesterday, you'll, you'll win on tomorrow, so, yeah. Were you, were you, or did you feel you had imposter syndrome during that period of time? Was there any part of you that was kind of, I know you say naivety existed, but did you feel to yourself sometimes, you know, you know, am I in the right place here? Uh, it's an interesting thing. I, I don't think so. Not in the way that I hear people describe imposter syndrome. And I really think like nerves or imposter syndrome, I think everybody probably feels the same physiological thing. So before you come on stage, you might have that feeling in your gut. And then your perception, the story you tell yourself about that feeling becomes your reality. So before I come on stage, I might feel a little bit of thing in my chest here, but my body and my perception tells me that's my fight or flight response, my body's getting, giving me the energy I need to put on a good performance, right? Yeah. Someone else might interpret that same feeling as that means I'm gonna fail, I'm not capable, I don't have the experience, I'm good. And, and the science is very clear on it, how you interpret that feeling heavily sways your outcome and your performance. So even with like social chain, I think my perception has always been in my entire life, I'm meant to be in situations that are outside my zone of comfort and competency. I'm meant to be there. Okay, but let's add, add another piece to this equation. You're in that position running that business. <clears throat> You've got your business partner, Dom. Yeah. And he went through some challenges. Yeah, yeah. And so did you, did you become a paternal partner as a friendship with him when he was going through his challenges? And did, did having to deal with that, because that was quite a serious situation that he went through, did having to deal with that make you kind of like step up again? Yes. Yes. So... Context on that is, you know, I, my foot, one of the, the first person I hired at Woolpark was Dominic McGregor. So when I started Social Chain, I basically started it with him um, and another guy. And uh, Dom really struggled with the growth of the business and all of that stuff, the stress, the pressure, the fact that there was probably 15 months in those seven years where 
on payday, we didn't know how we were going to pay our employees. And at times, we had 200, 300, 400 employees. And it's payday today, and you know you can't pay them. We never missed payday, but going through that for 15 months, when you literally are sat in an office and everyone is so happy because it's Friday, and you're sat there knowing that you're going to need a miracle, literally sometimes a miracle, in order to pay them. They've, they've all planned their weekends. They've got holidays they're going on. They're going to this place and that place, and they want to go out, you know, and, and, and you know that the money's not in the bank. To pay. It's stressful. And then there's loads of other things that happen in business, which I talk about being hacked and all this just unpredictable chaos. Dom found it very hard, and um, he became an basically like a, I don't know whether you'd call it a functional alcoholic or an alcoholic, but he became pretty much an alcoholic. And I didn't understand that because I, I, we understand, we have a better understanding of mental health now. But when I went downstairs at 3 a.m. in the morning in our house and my business partner's in the laundry room drinking a bottle of whiskey at 3 a.m. in the morning with the lights off, you just think, oh, he's a bit of a pisshead. I took him back to his bed. And I remember that day, I write about it in my book, going up the stairs at 5 a.m., hearing a, a sound, rushing into the room because there's this red liquid everywhere, pulling the duvet off him, and it's 5 a.m., and he's drinking a bottle of red wine under the sheet. I, and then there was a couple of instances where he, had his, he, start, he drank too much in front of the team. So I was always the, so, like, the sober, composed one who would try and repair it. I talk about, talk about it again in my book, the day where I get a phone call. Um, I'm with one of my friends who's actually here today, my friend Logan, and we're at this restaurant, I get a phone call saying that Dom's got drunk and there's an incident unfolding across town. And I was so out, I called Dom, I'm screaming at him down the phone, blah, 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 blah. Um, he responds that he wants to quit and it broke my heart because I wanted to quit too. Um, but I would, I would never tell, I would have told him that. Um, and, I, and I say to him, let's meet in the office tomorrow, we're gonna have to solve this. We get to the office the next day and for the first time in my life, I saw something I'd never seen. This was just, he, was, he sat there and he cried. And he told me about how he was feeling, his pain, everything he was going through, all the stress. And we had to get to that breaking point to finally be honest with ourselves about how we were feeling. And from that day onwards, he went to therapy and he's now six years sober. Completely different guy, completely different human being. Um, and from that point on, he was also able to help me carry the weights with me. Mm -hmm. And everything changed from that point on. Um, it taught me an important lesson about business and business partners, which is like, you have to communicate. Kind of goes back to what I said about my mum as well. You have to communicate with each other, especially when things are hard, because what you don't say will end up controlling you, and um, it will manifest in other ways. And I say, I say this quite often, like, you, you can't drug your pain away, you can't drink it away, you have to just, you have to admit it, and you have to put it out there, and then, and then you can take control of it, or it will take control of you. And the ways that it takes control of you, or the ways you try and medicate your pain, whether it's alcohol or drinking or whatever else, or you know, there's various other types of you know, self-medication that people do, even things like masturbation, these things will end up becoming your new pain. You have to confront your pain. And when you're building a business, you're gonna go through unbelievable amounts of pain. And I, 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 the thing that I can do for entrepreneurs that I think has the greatest impact is describe the, the excruciatingly painful moments. And I do that because, not to try and make myself a tough guy, but because I know you're gonna go through it as well, no matter how smart you are. So, I, and I want you to know that on that day, when everything goes wrong, and it feels like it's over, that's not a testament of your inadequacy or your lack of experience. That is just entrepreneurship. You have excruciatingly difficult moments that feel unsurmountable, that feel like they are fatal, 
and I had them over and 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 over again. And they were never fatal, even though it felt like it in the moment. And we were able to come overcome all of them. And they feel they feel so fatal before. On the day, it feels like everything's finished. But it's never the case. It's never the case. If you have the right philosophy to dealing with chaos. I grew up in a world where men's mental health wasn't a thing, you know, mm. it was kind of like, and I'm 51 years old, yeah. so it was just, you know, you get, crazy. On, get on with it, you yeah. know, just tough up, you yeah. know, well, what do you mean you're upset? What do you mean you're feeling down in the dumps, you know, go and sort yourself, have a drink, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> go, yeah. go and sort yourself out. And the, and the world's changed and evolved and there's some great people out there that, that have, have made it more accessible to men, you know, Jay Shetty's probably a good mm. example of that. When, when you understand the challenges that men have with mental health and the way you position yourself in the public eye, do you think you've become a bit of a talisman to give us a bit of hope? Um, what my, I have a responsibility to myself which ends up being service to others. And the responsibility I have to myself is to be honest. Jordan Peterson talk, talked a lot about this on my podcast. He basically said it's like the most important thing you can do for yourself. And when I look at like what I'm telling you today, all the stories I've told you today, when I look at how I live my life, how I do my podcast, how I treat people, this, the most important thing is being honest to myself. And I've seen the consequences of when people aren't truly honest with themselves. It usually looks like a midlife crisis. They end up becoming a lawyer because their mum told them that law was success. They get 20 years down the line and they realize that they absolutely hate law. They hate this city. The relationship they tolerated, and that's a horrible word, tolerate. They, the relationship they tolerated, they did that because they felt like they had to. And then they have this like existential midlife crisis moment. If you want to avoid that in your career, in your love life, in whatever, in your sexuality, which is a big one, when people aren't true to themselves in their sexuality, the suicide rates go up. Any marginalized community where people are forced to live outside of themselves, where they're forced to wear a mask for a long period of time. My guests on my podcasts that, uh, that wore a mask or tried to be someone or had to be a TV presenter, so they had to be happy every day, they all end up the same way, depressed. And having seen this and having realized that, like, I remember reading this philosophy book, this Swedish philosophy book, and it's, it's 200 years ago it was written, and it says if you succeed in basically faking your life and faking not being true to yourself, you will fall into despair because you've abandoned yourself. If you fail in trying to be somebody else, you'll also fall into despair because you failed at abandoning yourself. So the philosopher said, philosopher said the only way to find joy is to, to be who you are. And it's a, it's a central thing in my life. Um, so what I was saying in response to your question is, my responsibility is to tell you everything, right? That's my responsibility to me, to make sure I don't have a midlife crisis, I don't become someone in the public eye who I can't maintain, you don't ever think I'm some good guy that has perfect morals and that's this person of perfection, so I never have to try and live a life up to that standard. My obligation is to be me every day. And it just so happens there's not enough of that. There's not enough people saying, this is my, these are my skeletons, I was unbelievably lonely because I was obsessed with money and I was insecure and I was full of shame and I, was, I had race issues. I relaxed my hair because I wanted to be white. There's no one saying these things. So, in, in service to myself, I'm doing a service to so many others because it just so happens that those things that I'm sharing are in low supply on Instagram. You don't get a lot of likes for sharing that kind of thing, but they're in high demand because it is the true nature of like everyone's life here. Mm -hmm. 
So the truth, the authenticity, is in such short supply in the world, but it's in such high demand because it's actually the thing that you resonate most with. If I sit here and go, oh, put up a picture of my car, and I don't even have a car, but put up a picture of like a Rolex and a car, like none of you are going to re relate to that. That's not the 99% of your lives that you deal with when you're at home in bed eating a pot noodle. The 99% of your lives is like insecurity and shame and doubt and these kinds of things. So in, just to conclude, in service to myself, talking about mental health or whatever else, it just so happens you do a huge service to everybody else. So it's win-win. Mm. Okay, let's talk about heroes quickly. Heroes. We have people that are heroes to us and inspirational people. And I saw you recently post about the passing of Jamal Edwards, mm. uh, 31 years old. Yeah. Tell, tell me, what did Jamal mean to you? Yeah, when I was, when I was that 18-year-old kid living in Mosside, like the, tough, the rough area in Manchester, he, you know, the most science has shown that the most powerful role models to anybody are those that we can relate to. So if, they, if they're the same gender as you, if they look like you, if they've come from where you come from, it's a, it's a significantly more powerful role model, more relatable than, than any other. And Jamal was a kid that didn't really have an education. He was a black kid, and he'd built this big business worth millions. And honestly, in the UK, he was the only one. So at 18 years old, I'm like stalking this guy on the internet. I'm like joining little Skype groups that, I, that he says he's going to be in to try and ask him a question. I'm spending the last money I have to try and buy his book. I'm following him and stalking him on social media. I see that Google Chrome ad we all saw. 10 years ago, showing this young black guy that had built this big YouTube business, and he was, in many respects, the proof that I could too. He was the evidence that I could, that my big dreams weren't fantasy. And so, yeah, he was just this big role model for me. And then, obviously, in later years, we got to meet. He came on my podcast, we became friends. I spoke to him a week before he died. And it's, I'm so glad that, so two weeks before Jamal passed away, I, got, I did Loose Women, the TV show. Uh -huh. Everybody know Loose Women? You know Loose Women? <laughs> you don't know it. Basically, <laughs> the guy's like, no, <laughs> no, no, no idea. Four women sit on a panel and they just talk about whatever's like culturally relevant. Um, Jamal's mother is one of the panelists on Loose Women. And I thought, you know what? I've thanked Jamal a million times for the inspiration he gave me. Because I'm doing Loose Women, I'll, I, I get a chance to thank his mother. So I get to the studio at Loose Women and I'm looking through the hallways trying to find her, Brenda. And it turns out that was the only day she wasn't in because of like COVID and stuff. So. I messaged, the last message I'd sent to Jamal was, um, hey bro, I, I went into Loose Women today and I, I, I searched the halls for your mother because I want to thank her for all the inspiration she gave me, you gave me in my life for raising a child that gave me so much inspiration. And see, so he was like, oh, thank you so much. He texted Brenda with that message and then she replied and he sent me the screenshot. And then a couple of days later, he was gone. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So it's such a strange concept that someone so young and it sounds like a strange thing to say, but the reason why you saw the reaction online to Jamal that you did was because he was the nicest, most humble person I've ever encountered that is a success. He definitely dealt with imposter syndrome because he said he did. He said publicly he did. He was just, to every single person he encountered, he was, you couldn't believe how nice he was how humble, how gracious, how, how willing to help you. The type of guy that would walk away and you know he's saying good things about you. Never mm. jealous, never ever. And, he, and it's funny because one of his best friends came to my show at the London Palladium last week and he walks up to me and goes, now you've got to carry on. He goes, because the last conversation I had with Jamal was about you and Jamal was saying amazing things about you so you've got to carry on now. And then another friend, Luke Massey, who runs a company called Vibe, tweeted me the same thing since I spoke to 
Jamal recently about you, and he was talking about you saying great things about you, you've got to carry on. And that's the thing that, like, for me, Jamal lives on. He lives on as this reminder that when you encounter people in your life, you, like, like treat them always how you want to be treated, but with such grace and class and kindness. Because that's, that's, his success is one thing. The thing that I'm so fascinated about is his character. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've seen many people that could live up to his, char- his standard of character. Just a class act, yeah. Just, just this unbelievable, suspiciously classy act. <laughs> like, you know, when you think, how can one person be that classy? He was that guy. And that's why you're seeing the reaction you're seeing on social media, why he trended number one and all these celebrities and everyone has a story about him because he was that to everyone. Remarkable achievement. Okay, let's, let's ask a few questions about where we are right now, Dubai. You've been yeah. here a few times. Yeah. We, a lot of people come and live in Dubai. I'm sure you'll all agree with me here that there's, there's an opportunity to build a better future for yourself, have an opportunity to maybe start a business or, mm. or grow within a business, and it's all very exciting. We've got lots of shiny, tall buildings here, and this place is fast moving. What do you, what do you make of it, literally from an entrepreneur's mindset? Not just, you know, it's great and it's sunny and there's beaches, but what do you, what do you feel of the place? I think it's a place of tremendous potential. In fact, I was talking to someone from the, the Dubai Tourism Board earlier in my, in my green room before I came out here, and I just wanted to land one message to her. I just wanted to say one thing, because someone had told me Dubai has a goal to create 20 unicorns, billion dollar companies before 2030, I think it is. And I was, I was just saying to her, honestly, if that's your objective, if you want to create unicorns, then you need to brand Dubai as a home, a, f- a friendly home for Web3 developers and entrepreneurs, blockchain, crypto, whatever because those are the companies that are becoming the unicorns the fastest right now. And I run a company in Web3 called Third Web, and the valuation went from 50 million we raised at in December to we're raising at a 400 million valuation. By the end of this year, the company will probably be a unicorn. And it's backed by Gary Vaynerchuk, Mark Cuban, the biggest entrepreneurs in the world. You're not seeing that, that level of growth anywhere else. And then I look at the, the stats around hiring. Web3 is outpacing the technology industry by four times in terms of LinkedIn job postings for developers. There's this exodus of talent. And, you, and typically, you want to follow where the builders are going. And the builders are moving from Amazon to go and work at like these Web3 companies. So Dubai has this huge opportunity if it can attract talent, investors, and it can create a, a business environment that's friendly for Web3, it has a huge opportunity. So if I was running Dubai, you know, they said there's a... Do you want to? Ah, busy. I've got podcasts and stuff to do. <laughs> um, they said there's this entrepreneur visa. I said to her backstage, I said, change the name of it. The same visa. Just call it a Web3 visa. And it will, honestly, the minute that's announced, it will go through every Telegram, Discord, WhatsApp group, and the perception of Dubai will shift positively, and builders and investors will start coming here for that reason. I think it's the, the number one thing that D- Dubai could do. If they, if they want investment and the economy to grow here, I think that's it. Why does Elon Musk push back against Web 3.0 as much as he does in the metaverse, compared yeah. to all of you guys that are coming at it from another point? Obviously, you, yeah. Gary, and everybody else. Well, what's going on there? Because yeah. everybody respects what Elon Musk has got to say, too. Yeah, so what, what Elon is saying in like Jack Dorsey, they're not saying that it's a scam or that it's not an interesting industry. What they're saying is that 
the, the kind of the base principle of Web3 is that it's decentralized, that it's putting the power back in people's hands, right? That you no longer need these, these conglomerates in the middle like a Facebook or a Google. With decentralization, we can go like peer to peer. What they're saying is that fundamentally, it's still kind of the same thing in terms of the ownership. Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley are investing hundreds of millions and billions in Web3 companies. So when you look at the, the owners of a lot of these companies, it's still Web2-esque. You know, like the big VCs that own Facebook are the big VCs investing in Web3. They're not saying it's the Web3 itself, the idea of decentralization and all the, the technology like NFTs are, are a waste of time because Twitter, you know, Jack Dorsey is, is one of the people that had the conversation with Elon. Twitter have just allowed you to change your display pictures to NFTs. I'm sure a lot of what happens on Twitter, whether it's ticketing or whatever, will become an NFT. And then on the Elon side, they've got 1.5 billion of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And the only reason they, they stopped, Elon stopped accepting Bitcoin was because it does appear to be a contradiction because of the ESG issues around uh, the environment. But they will 100%, I'd bet my life on the fact that Elon's companies will be paid in cryptocurrencies and a lot of the technology you see within the car will be decentralized, 100%. It goes back to when I started in social media. The number, like, when I started in social media in 2014, it was effectively a wave coming into shore, right? And it was inevitable because I told you, the flyers weren't working, the posters weren't working, but this Facebook page was driving thousands of people for uh -huh. zero cost to my website. The numbers were bigger, it was better, but whenever you have those moments, you get huge resistance. So I was laughed out the door by MTV when I talked to them about starting a Facebook page because the prospect of a brand being on a Facebook page in 2013 was like absurd, it's dangerous, right? So one of the key indicators for me in my life now that something is inevitable is when I look and I think, without the noise, I go, it's solving a problem in a better way. And then the second thing is, there's huge resistance. For me, that's an indicator that we're early and Web3, blockchain, whatever you want to call it, is a wave coming into shore. The genie is out the bottle. I no, I no longer want to entertain the conversation about whether it's going to happen or not because it's a waste of time. The, the, the thing I thought about as an entrepreneur was web, the Web2 wave came into shore and Steve Bartlett was there on his surfboard. He picked the right surfboard, he surfed, came into shore. Yeah. Web3, it's coming into shore. So this is why I, I co-founded the business Third Web because it's inevitable and I want to be on the right surfboard with the right team. And as I said, the, my, my startup was valued at 50 million in December when it launched. It's going to be valued at rough, probably 400 million in the next week. Um, and it's solving a problem in a better way. So just with thanks to some of our sponsors, first of all, Najahi, they bring talent here to the Middle East, run massive events, motivational speakers and inspirational leaders. And what Najahi do to educate people here in the Middle East really hasn't been beaten by anyone. And they do a fantastic job. And some of the guests we've had on the show have come directly from Najahi. So big thanks to them. You know when you see UFC and that guy comes out onto the ring and he goes fighting in the blue corner and that guy, I forgot his name, I think it's Bruce Buck, I think it's Bruce Buck. Anyway, that's how it felt being live on stage with Stephen Bartlett tonight at Dubai Opera. I've been wanting to interview him for such a long time and he's always been so busy and even when I saw him last year in Brighton at an event we spoke at, he didn't have time to sit down but this time it was live on stage, how cool was that? Look, Stephen Bartlett has achieved so much and hopefully you've learned tonight how eloquent he is, how smart he is and the difference he's making and the impact he's having on the world. 
I certainly can't wait to spend more time with him, learn more about his story and watch him grow. He's got the number one podcast in the world, which a lot of you listen to, I know. And I'm going to beat him eventually, but mate, I'm going to have to keep fighting for now. I got on a plane coming back from London the other day and I saw him. <laughs> BA recommends the podcast is there too. I'm like, ah, Claire, we've got to do more. Hopefully you're benefiting from this content and enjoying the show that we put together. And, and genuinely, I really appreciate you listening. I know that I ask you every single week, to leave some love. But genuinely, if you're listening to this right now on iTunes, then please leave us a five-star rating. I can't tell you how much impact it has. And if you're listening on any other podcast app, you know anything at all, leave some love. Or also, leave me some feedback. Tell me about guests you'd like me to interview or tell me about how I can make the show better. I really appreciate all that you do, but I want more people to see and hear about what we do. And the only way that's gonna happen is with you pressing buttons, giving comments, and engaging with us. So please, on this occasion, do that for us. We would be really, really pleased. I'll see you on the next episode.